So joining myself and Alex today is Matt Hennessy, Chief Intelligence and Analytical Officer for NHS Greater Manchester Integrated Care. Matt began his career in criminal justice as a key uh, as a drugs key worker and forensic psychologist, but since has held sort of many senior positions in the Home Office, Department of Health, Public Health England, and the NHS. Matt also holds an MBA in Executive Leadership and is an honorary senior uh, research fellow with the Division of Informatics, Imaging and Data Science at the University of Manchester. And just for context for our listeners, the new ICB has been created, NHS GM, uh, was merged with, uh, I believe, up to 10 CCGs to support the devolved care of nearly 3 million people across 10 boroughs across Greater Manchester by taking control of their own budgets and decision-making to provide a better standard of care, sharing of data, insights with other authorities across the Greater Manchester region. So quite a big uh, uh, task there and role uh, to fill, Matt. So welcome to uh, Fika. Really great to have you on board. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Brilliant. And Matt, so one of our uh, most important and first question we always ask our, our sort of guest is, you know, Fika's obviously copping a cake with friends. What are you, what's your favourite sort of, your coffee or tea drinker and your favourite cake? Um, it's got to be coffee every time. Uh, black coffee. Um, I'm not a big cake eater. I don't think yep. um, I, I can do a, a custard donut, but I, I do have <laughs> a a formal addiction to crisps. I, I'm, I'm a savoury crisp eater. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm the same as well. But today I think I've got was it a coffee and a bourbon. Yeah, there you go. So uh, no, thanks for sharing that with us. Brilliant. And Alex, what are you? What are you? A coffee or tea drinker? What are you? What are you? What's your favourite cake? I am a black coffee drinker, and for cake-wise, I'm fruit cake with oh. a slice of cheese. It's quite an odd combination, but it's yeah. the best things you could ever have. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. With brilliant. So Matt, no, it'd be really great if I was just when we were speaking last time to sort of share with our listeners because you had a, a, a quite an interesting career. Would you like to sort of share with us your sort of career highlights today, and sort of any sort of key advice and sort of insight you you picked up along the way for our list? Really good to hear that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, thanks for that. Um, great question. I suppose my career isn't—I'd uh, say it's slightly unorthodox, to say the least. Uh, I never had a, a, a vision to become um, a data specialist or intelligence. Uh, when when I was thinking about careers, I, I did a degree in psychology. I was very much into psychology. I specialised in hypnosis, um, oh. and uh, but I, I didn't think hypnos hypnotist was was really a career at that point. So. Um, I, at the time, there was there was a lot on telly around um, forensic psychology. The, um, Robbie Coltrane was was uh, cracker. Uh, cracker the, yeah, the, you remember that. those? And uh, and there were some quite high profile sort of murder cases with uh, people like Paul Britton and David Cantor as, as sort of famous people in that space. And, it, and I was just really interested in it. So I um, I sought to pursue a, a career in forensic psychology, but uh, even to get on the sort of courses there, you have to. Um, do do a sort of tour of duty in a forensic setting. So I, I managed to get a job after doing some um, charitable work. I, I worked for probation, and I was thrown in at the deep end with with um, uh, drugs and alcohol, the, the probation programs to to support substance misuse offenders. Um, so I I did that, and and that just gave me such a that was such a great exposure to um, almost the, the products of um, 
poverty and 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 difficult lives and and things like that and you saw the manifestation of those those products uh those those challenges trauma uh, childhood trauma things like that um uh, but it, it gave me a, a experience in the breadth of criminal justice so for for a period i was prosecuting people uh, on behalf of probation for, for breaching their orders in crown courts and magistrate courts um and after i spent a bit of time there i ended up um partly working in the NHS uh, at that point because uh, I was assigned those people who were um, receiving drug treatment but were also on probation. So there was, it was a partnership there. Um, and then uh, following that, with, with that experience, I managed to get uh, to become a trainee forensic psychologist in the prison service. Um, and again, um, the, the, the exposure to working with uh, dangerous, violent criminals criminals, sex offenders. Um, uh, there, I was uh, trained as a hostage negotiator in the prison service. Uh, so so there's just fascinating stuff. Um, but because of my drugs background in the prison service, they wanted me to work on developing drug uh, treatment programs. So I ended up doing quite, quite a lot more strategic stuff rather than working directly with offenders. Um, and uh, moving from the prison service, I went in to join the home office at the regional level. Uh, that was about the time the Deputy Prime Minister's office was setting up uh, government offices. And um, and so I led on drugs, alcohol um, for, for the Northwest region. Um, the, the whole government office set up uh, basically took responsibility for quite a lot of activity for, for all the government departments. So they, they'd blend um, projects and things like that. And so I also led on preventing violent extremism. That, that program as well. Uh, after after probably about five years in in the Home Office, I moved to the Department of Health to head up the national support team for alcohol. Um, that was that was a really interesting role because it it exposed me to the whole country. We we did visits to uh, we did over three years we did forty visits, week long visits to to local authorities and to visit CCGs. Uh, and it was it was a, it was a really good model that was based on doing research to understand the issues uh, for for me it was the alcohol issues in in that place uh, looking at data trying to trying to distill huge amounts of data then going there and and hearing from people so we did thirty or forty back to back interviews a, a team of about ten uh, so three days of solid interviewing. On the Thursday of every week, we'd lock ourselves as a team in a, in a hotel and not come out until the report was written. Um, sometimes there were four o'clock in the morning finishes uh, because on the Friday morning at nine o'clock, we'd have to deliver that report. So that was about taking huge amounts of information, not just the, the stuff we'd done before the visit, but digesting what people had told us on the visit and formulating uh, um, observations and, uh, and information. Uh, I then moved, uh, when that program finished, I moved to the Public Health Observatory in the Northwest, which was hosted in Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, and that's where I was able to grow my analytics in, interest. I was, I was exposed to um, really sharp academic minds around the latest mathematical techniques and, uh, and data science was really coming into its own very, very early days at that point. Uh, the uh, machinery of government changes meant that uh, public health observatories moved into Public Health England, uh, and I, I moved as part of that to to head up the uh, the local intelligence service for the Northwest region. 
And I suppose coming coming into the last five or so years, I'd been seconded into Greater Manchester as part of their devolution journey from Public Health England. And I took up a post, uh, my current post full time um, in maybe June a couple of years ago. So um, so I've been doing this chief intelligence and analytics officer role since June 2021 full time. So that, that whole breadth with, the, with that background, I suppose, Matt, all that multi-agency working is absolutely key, isn't it? Because you would imagine with the early stuff with the drugs and alcohol team, you were kind of that multi-agency piece. But then moving into kind of from the analytics perspective and, and distilling large amounts of data and insights and intelligence is a really good background, isn't it, what we're doing today? Yes, I, I feel like in every role that I've had, I've, I've been able to take something and, and yeah. I'm hoping that the role I've got now is a, is accumulation of that activity, actually, and that experience. Um, wow, what a diverse um, experience that you have got. So, um, Matt, what would you say the role of Ch a Chief Intelligence and Analytics Officer is in Greater Manchester? Uh, so, it's a... Um, it's a role that I suppose is akin to a chief data officer. Um, I, I I sort of developed the role myself with along with with the leaders in Greater Manchester because I didn't want it to be just about data. Um, uh, the, the the purpose of a chief data officer is to derive value from data, but I think just just seeing you as a data role and not as the um, a role that drives the value or drives the output. Uh, I think was something we wanted to get away from. So I was really keen that the word intelligence was in there. And and I think the, the, the bulk of that role is actually championing the data and intelligence workforce, the professionals, bringing their work to life and um, pre um, presenting that in front of decision makers. So that's, um, that's that, I suppose that's the purpose of the role. I think it's trying to move the whole data conversation from what we've seen in the past, a colleague of mine, Graham, uh, talks about a lot of people coming to him and just uh, just asking for a data butler service. They, they just say, can you, can you just serve up the data? And, and I think in the past that, that has been what we've done. I think what we need to do is serve up the insight, use, use the expertise of the data professionals to actually um, bring intelligence. We, we, want to, we want to focus on that because that's what just drives decision making. It's, it's not data per se. Data is pretty inert. It doesn't really do anything. You need people to interpret it and, and change it and uh, derive insight uh, from it. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that's 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 fantastic. It just, I mean, for that role you mentioned about championing the profession. What is the biggest challenge in your new role in here? Do you think? Um, I think the the biggest challenge we've got at the moment is that uh, there was a time when, uh, not in the too distant past, where a single person would chaperone data right through its journey. So they'd be responsible for the collection of it, the cleaning of it, the processing, the curation of it, the, the analysis, uh, presenting it. And, and then they'd actually go go into the fora where uh, the data was, was hopefully going to influence a decision to do the presentation. Now, with data's growing exponentially. There's more data. There's, uh, we... We've got to start segmenting that journey because the skills to to manage big data and collect big data require things like programming, coding. That it's a different discipline really now than it used to be. Similarly, 
the art of negotiation and influencing and interpretation, real world application, that requires people to invest time in as well. So I think the the, the process, we, we don't want to pigeonhole people. We don't want to say you're a data engineer and that's it because a data engineer that doesn't know how their data is being used isn't, isn't going to maximize their, their capabilities. Similarly, uh, somebody going out there um, presenting data that doesn't quite understand how it was created and, and processed uh, is, is also sort of underselling uh, the capability. But I think we are going to see a concentration of skills. And I think that's the biggest challenge at the moment is to help the workforce move into that uh, space. Uh, thanks for sharing those insights. That's fascinating. I think it's that sort of, uh, I suppose, uh, balance between sort of deep domain expertise on coding on one side, and then what you're saying, I think, on the other side was kind of the persuasion, the influence of beast, where the hypnosis probably comes in to play a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, thanks, for, thanks for sharing that. And, and just thinking as well, because at, at the beginning when we talked about, um, you know, the uh, Manchester all coming together with those 10 organisations, you know, um, I understand you've got quite a, an innovative and collaborative analytical data science platform uh, that you, you've built and you share that with all your users there. But really fascinating to understand how do you how did you bring all those kind of multiple organizations on board? Because I imagine with the you know 10 organizations in Manchester, they'd all have their own view of kind of what the platform I have today that could be used by everybody. How did you sort of balance that to get everybody's view and ideas on board and then get them to sort of work together to collaborate to improve, I mean, and drive efficiency through that. I mean, that, that to not no understatement, that's a hell of a, an achievement getting everybody together. How, how did you go about that? Well, I, I begin by saying we're not there yet. I think yeah. there's, we're, we're on a journey. Um, the so, so Greater Manchester is it's a bit of a blessing and a curse because there's a maturity in, in terms of the, the system. Um, the footprint hasn't really changed in 20 years. I think the Association of Greater Manchester Authorities came, first came together in about 1987 or something. So we've been working as a system in one form or another for, for many years. And I think that that's uh, that's allowed our relationships to establish. It's, it's, um, we're not chopping and changing identity. I mean, it, I don't think it's that people go around uh, identifying as a greater Mancunian, they 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 do identify as their um, as their place, um, but I think people do recognise they are part of a greater Manchester system. So I think people can hold that identity. Uh, whereas I know that a lot of ICSs are coming together probably for the first time. So um, so you, you, there's a journey they have to go on there. Uh, in terms of trying to bring people together, I think. It was pointing out the um, the challenges of mobilising at scale some of the good practice that's there. So if um, Manchester as a, as a CCG for a long time has had a primary and secondary care linked data set because they managed to work through the information governance, did a huge amount of work with data controllers to do that. Uh, so they've had that for a while, but um, it wasn't very simple for any other area to adopt that. Similarly, uh, there's places like Berry, uh, Rochdale have been working very closely with, uh, with, with sort of uh, trying to understand things like vulnerable families, linking health and non-health data, and trying to 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 do analysis on that front. Um, Salford's been doing quite a lot in the as a global digital exemplar. Did did a huge amount of work on on data science. Has been quite at the forefront of that. But there was no way to scale it. So even if even if somewhere like Stockport wanted to to adopt 
one one of these projects. They've got their own infrastructure. They, they, there's a huge effort just to lift and shift the good practice and the learning. So I think we're pushing at an open door to a degree to say, if you if you do all this great stuff, do it in the same environment, and therefore you just it scales dead easy because you can just flick a switch and there you go. Everybody's got access to it. Um, I also think that the other thing that drove a lot of this um, uh, activity is a recognition that we were wasting so much time debating and arguing over um, what the actual figures were. So, um, you know, one locality would say, as, as part, part of performance management, would say, uh, no, no, it's it's 36. And, and everyone else, well, no, in our data, it's 37. And... And so having a single version of the truth, I think, that everybody could could get behind and fully understand was was quite important. Oh, thanks. Fascinating. So it just goes back to those things about you know the, the key relationships and the identity is so strong and powerful, isn't it? That's right. I think the um the, the other thing I, I mean I mean I mentioned it it was a blessing that uh that that we've been a sort of coterminous geography for, for quite a while. But it is a big geography. And I think the the challenge, the, the, the curse is that to get anything done, we have to get a lot of stakeholders in the room. We've got nine trusts, we've got 10 oh. local authorities, a combined authority, a mayor's office, uh, the political leaders, all these uh, groups. So if we want to make a decision as a system, it does require getting sort of 50 or 60 people in a room and getting them to agree, which is a really difficult thing to do. But the benefit, the dividend of doing that is massive because that's how devolution came about. We managed to do that. We managed to get everybody on the same page. And then we went to government and said, we, we want a devolved health budget. And that was worth six billion pounds. That's, that's, um, that's a huge. So being able to spend six billion pounds uh, in a way that um, felt quite democratic was really important. Um, it may be easier in, in smaller smaller systems to to get that consensus but the prize might be smaller you might be able to get four or five people in a room get them all to agree but actually you're talking about millions of pounds as opposed to to billions so um so yeah uh, that i think we've been fortunate in that respect but that consensus the consensus i suppose of maturity is it, it, the level that you've got is because quite macro but you could have that consensus locally could you equally yeah yes yeah that's it uh, thanks for sharing that. And on to just following on from when you mentioned at the very beginning as well about, you know, the professionalization agenda, you know, how do you see the role of kind of analysts changing the future? I'm just thinking of, you know, coming out with you know, machine learning, the Internet of Things, you know, rapid increase in data is going to sort of extrapolate, you know, and, and double in the next few years. How do you see the role changing? Um, well, I've, I talked earlier about the uh, the sort of concentration of skills. I think we're asking people to to, to sort of um, declare an interest in that they're, they're interested in. If, if, if they want to get into coding or they want to, to, to become that subject, that deep subject matter expert, then we need to support them to do that. Uh, if they want to be the, the sort of um, almost like a business partnering role, somebody who influences and, and takes the, the interpreted intelligence into the system, then, then that's a skill set we also need to support. So I think there's that kind of, um, change to the to the role of an analyst is is part of the future. I I think the other thing to say is that the AI and and machine learning is uh, comes with its risks. 
in the sense that we uh, a lot of predictive analytics is based on what we've seen in the past. And what we have seen in the past is that um, there's fundamental inequalities. There's there's things that about the past that we don't want to take into the future, but all of our predictive models don't take that into account. So I think the role of analysts will be to um, develop that deep insight that can safeguard against some of the some of the risks of of using the data in the past to drive the uh, action of the future. Watch out that training data that you're using isn't biased, that you're, you're, you're building bias into your future models. Yeah, a really good yes, point. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and Matt, you made a reflection in you about, I think last time we spoke about, you know, developing, getting more people into STEM as well. Are you able to sort of allude on that sort of passion that you've got? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think we do need to, we need to build out the, the STEM um, community. I and and make it more inclusive as well as there there are some inequalities in 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 stem in terms of the the number of um the number of women and uh, the number of people from from different backgrounds uh, accessing stem i think the the interesting thing though is that uh, we we shouldn't do that exclusively uh, from I, I it's just my perspective i think but um some of the best analysts i've known come from backgrounds that aren't necessarily STEM backgrounds. Uh, I can think of people, and they probably even know who they are, but they're uh, uh, people who've come from planning backgrounds or geography, looking at GIS systems, uh, politics and history. Um, So I think there's definitely a requirement in in the analytical space for people to be numerate. But actually, more important is that, that, that they have passion and that they're inquisitive. And they're curious. Uh, they have a curiosity, and I think it's that that um, that we need to foster. And if we do, if we do that, then I think we will bring people into the STEM career pathways through almost through the back door. We we get them into roles where we we uh, support their passion and their curiosity, and then we start to expose them to new statistical techniques or. Um, data science applications or technology and people start to build an interest after all that's, that's kind of what i did i i uh, i didn't really cut psychology is is a science but it's um uh, i i could have gone off and studied freud and, and and all of that sort of stuff but the more i got exposed to data intelligence that sort of thing that the more i was interested in um i also think the um uh, the the career itself, the the career of an analyst, uh, the the profession of data and analytics, is it's it's pretty unique in that it it there's not a lot of barriers to entry. It's quite accessible in the sense that uh, we're extremely welcoming of neurodiversity, uh, physical impairment. I, I myself have a, a significant hearing loss. Um, there's people who have mobility or physical uh, disabilities. There's a load of jobs I couldn't do, like um, being a pilot or a police officer or, or um, be, because of my hearing uh, impairment. But actually, the, uh, data and analytics is is actually open to uh, wide, wide um, sections of society and it really is quite accessible. So um, I think we, we really need to major on that and, and promote that uh, that we we can offer this this sort of work. I agree. Uh, fascinating observations. Thanks for sharing that with us.
Yeah, I agree too. I mean, like Matt, it's just like um, we did a observatory to the state of the state of the nation report recently, and it's been sent out. I mean, like we find there is to, um, from our side, professionalizing our workforce, allowing them to practice some of the more advanced analytics in machine learning and also the AI space is really important. And obviously, you know, like from from your side, there is so many elements that you need to look at with the joining of the different CCG or the different organizations together there is a lot that you need to look at but more importantly what are you currently looking at what are you working on what's your what's on your agenda uh yeah it's 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 a huge agenda at the moment quite quite a side of the the sort of transformation that we're, we're doing sort of in the workforce um i think if I was to summarise our, our work in, in five areas, I think there's, there is that workforce piece, helping people to identify the skills that they want to, uh, to get into and that professionalisation piece. We've, we've got to set up and establish our, lo our linked longitudinal uh, record. Uh, there's still quite a bit we can do there, especially on the social care side. I think once we have that, we're interested in risk stratification. So one of the big pieces of work we've got at the moment is trying to, uh, we've got some models that predict people's risk of deterioration while they wait for elective care. Interestingly, again, from a population health perspective, uh, there, the de a deterioration while someone waits for, for elective care isn't predominantly driven by deteriorations in their actual physical health it, it's not uh, necessarily that their blood pressure increases from such by so many points it's um it's about their their wider environmental circumstances so if their debt levels increase or if they're in poor housing or they're having family troubles or they're starting to use food banks or if their carer lives a long way away those are the things that actually drive people's deterioration while I wait for, for elective care and actually drive their, their health service usage. So it's important that in our risk stratification, we do include these sorts of data sets. But once we've got that risk stratification, we've, um, we're able to better, firstly, we're able to support clinical decision-making, um, provide in, intelligence that enables clinicians perhaps to reprioritize their risk because somebody's at high risk of, uh, their health deteriorating while they wait. We we know they're going to have to wait because of the capacity challenges. But uh, so so clinicians could reprioritize, or we can work with community teams to wrap around services around the individual who's waiting, and actually support them in a way that we know mitigates the risk of their deterioration. So workforce, um, the longitudinal record uh, risk stratification and i suppose the the last two are providing a mechanism for people to access intelligence through the greater manchester intelligence hub so people knowing where to go to get that intelligence and the final bit i think which is really important at the moment especially as we look at sort of efficiencies in the system is strategic intelligence i think it gets overlooked quite a bit because people are going after the operational efficiencies they can find. But what we've got to make sure we focus on is doing the right thing and not just doing things right. Uh, and that, you know, that might be about saying, oh, okay, we're not going to do this activity. It works. We know it's effective, but it doesn't deliver the value that we could get by doing this act activity B at scale. 
So, um, so those are those are the sort of five five things that we're currently looking at. Well, thanks for sharing that, Matt. That's fascinating. So, no, and thanks for your, your time with Fika. And just thinking about all the areas you covered, such a lot, so inspiring, uh, inspiring story and a sort of vision for a collaborative future. Just sort of covering off some of the points you mentioned. You know, the piece about the the role that you developed is not just about data, but you know, championing that role of kind of getting the value from the data. I think and championing the professionals is really really key. And the piece about that, you know, that the role has become much bigger because of a lot of big data and the advancement of technology and it's not about pigeonholing people, but finding out where their, their expertise can be sort of improved and get the best person that you, you need and invest in them. And then you also mentioned, I think, about a really interesting piece about the maturity of kind of Manchester, but looking about the, the, the real strength in relationships, having an identity, but also that recognition about, you know, we can all argue about the number, but having that one unified view that we need to do the right thing is really key. And I, and I like the piece you mentioned as well about, you know, advanced technologies, AI, they can be overhyped and be really careful about, you know, introducing bias to any future models that you're building. But I, and I think from a, from a positive uh, sort of thing for me as well, that piece about STEM and that you mentioned about, you know, neurodiversity, we are a very accessible uh, sort of profession for everybody. I think that's a really good positive message out there. And, and then, you know, sort of beginning with the last piece about strategic intelligence we could probably do a whole session on that i think that's probably a, a really good uh, debate to get into but no really huge thanks for sort of sharing your your insights and, and, and wisdom on the call with us today and finally just just outside of your kind of busy uh, chief intelligence and analytical officer role you know what do you what do you do to relax um i, I could do a lot more to relax yeah. i tell you i think I, I, whether i got that balance right or i don't yeah. know but um I, I used to do a lot with the air cadets because my eldest yeah. son uh used to go uh there and i was a civilian instructor and an archery instructor with, with them uh so uh 617 squadron the dam busters wow. um yeah. But since my eldest has gone to university, I, I, I haven't. I've had to pull back from from that. So I'm supporting my youngest son. He he loves bouldering, so oh, wow. I'm, I'm trying to get into into bouldering. And uh, gosh, he he scampers up those walls yeah. like like nobody's business. Well, I'm, I'm struggling to hold my own weight. But um, yeah. so on the back of the bouldering, I, I thought I'd uh, I'd take up take up a bit of yoga. I'm, I'm struggling with my crow pose. Stretch those rocks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, anyone who's interested in uh, in yoga, have a go at the crow pose. That's uh, and and if you can do the flying crow, then you've got my utmost respect. Um, so so that's what I'm trying to do to keep physically active, uh, to try and test my brain. I'm um, I'm also uh, trying to learn Arabic. Wow. Uh, so uh, so yeah, I'm I'm doing it on one of these sort of platforms. Nearly done it for a whole year now. Um, but it's a it's a tough language, especially for, um, partly because it's it's uh, you know it's it's not a sort of uh, a kind of Greco-Roman alphabet. Um, yeah. So so it's, it's it's not just learning a different language, learning different letters, different way of writing, uh, everything uh, about it. So I'm quite fascinated by that. Oh, fascinating! Oh, well. Yeah, no, the bouldering's great. I did that many years ago, but you've got to be, you've got to have the right body weight. I think otherwise you, you fall off very easy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And how can people uh, follow you, Matt, on uh, LinkedIn? And, and do you have a Twitter handle at all? I do, yeah. Um, so LinkedIn, uh, Matt Hennessy, I think uh, you'll yeah. probably be able to find in and connect with me there. Um, on Twitter, my handle is uh, Matt underscore data underscore geek. 
so my data geek um so you can you can find out what flavor crisps i'm eating at any given point in the day by uh, by following me on twitter thanks for joining uh, myself and alex but uh, great to hear from you and i uh, hope to get you on in the future again thank you thank you very much thank you so i'd like to thank our speaker for joining us today and for everybody else tuning in to this podcast uh, look forward to seeing you in the future